It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. It is a tremendous privilege to have as our guest today, Renee Powell, the recipient of the 2020 ASGCA Donald Ross Award. To simply call Renee a golfer does not do justice to the number of ways she has positively impacted the game and the industry. So before we begin our journey through the career of Renee and her family, I'll simply say welcome to the podcast, Renee. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you. I should point out that we are actually recording this in the evening because, thankfully, uh, despite everything that has gone on in the world in 2020, the game continues. And, Renee, I know you spent your day at Clearview Golf Club, as you often do, uh, so we had to wait to record this until the sun went down. So that's a pretty good problem to have. <laughs> that's true. Um, and, and, you know, and today we had uh, some youth that were playing that it started, and they had a golf match, and that was great. We have spoken this summer, Renee, to more than 20 industry leaders as part of our ASGCA Insights podcast series, and those conversations have covered uh, the positive aspects of golf as a game, a sport, an industry, a business, uh, a way to break down barriers, a social benefit to a community, a financial benefit, a, a health and recreational benefit, but we've never had someone as a guest who can check all of those boxes until now. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> At, uh, now I'm tired, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been, you know, you've been a trailblazer and we're going to look at a number of those experiences here in our conversation. Uh, but it's easy to see where all this came from as well. Uh, I, I know your father was a golf caddy as a young boy and, and not only started, but also starred on his own golf team in high school. Uh, Renee, if you could share with our audience this, the story that, that, that you told me when, when we were together in Canton just a couple of weeks ago about how his experience in Europe during World War II would lead to the creation of the Clearview Golf Club in Canton, Ohio. Right. Well, my dad started playing golf actually in, in the little town that he grew up in, and he discovered it when he was nine, uh, began caddying and, and, uh, and playing then, and then started the very first high school golf team they ever had. Um, he was the um, number one player on the team, the, the, the coach, and scheduled the matches. And after high school, he really wasn't welcome at those same area golf courses because of the color of his skin. And their family was the only black family in the entire town. Well, fast forward, um, he was sent to World War II and to the European theater and to Scotland and England, where he was actually able to, on days off, play golf with um, borough, you know, members golf clubs and, and play at various golf courses because every, every small town in England and Scotland both have golf courses. And after the war, he spent three years during World War II overseas and he came back and he said he thought that things would have changed. However, we realized that he still wasn't welcome at the area golf courses, even though he uh, came back as a veteran of World War II and had a, so much of a love of the game of golf and was able to play golf when he was overseas, but not here in his own country. And so he felt that the only thing that he could do and the only way that he could find to create opportunities for everyone to find some way somehow to build a golf course, which is how Clearview Golf Course began. And 
he actually um, found a, a piece of land that was an old rundown dairy farm, which he said he walked the land and found that it was suitable for uh, a golf course and uh, that he was determined to develop a golf course from it. And he actually, as he was building it and seeding it, the very first nine holes, he literally walked back and forth with just a cedar around his neck, a hand cedar around his neck, turning it and seeding every bit of that golf course because he was just so determined that um, everyone should have an opportunity to play this game that he had fallen in love with. Which allowed you and your brothers the opportunity to, to play. And uh, I've heard you tell the story a couple of times of, uh, of why it was that you were able to become uh, the, the caliber and quality of player that you were as opposed to your brothers. Well, because I was a girl and my, and, uh, my brothers had to work on the golf course all the time. And, and I actually beat golf balls. <laughs> and my dad actually, my dad taught our entire family to play the game taught my mom and um, my two brothers and myself. Uh, and I, as I say, fortunately, I was a girl and didn't have to do the same sort of work that the boys had to do. But I, I did learn how to do some things on the golf course and I actually love mowing greens. Um, but uh, but my, my job was sort of to, to play golf. And you played pretty well, as I recall. You headed off to Ohio State University, part of that team, became later became one of the first African-American players on the LPGA Tour. In fact, if I understand it correctly, Renee, it was the 1967 Women's U.S. Open at the Homestead in Virginia. That was your first ever professional tournament, correct? It was. <laughs> what, are your, what are your memories of that event? Oh, my gosh. I have a lot of memories of that because uh, I'd gone down as an amateur, actually and ended up turning pro um, A before the tournament started. My mom was with me. Uh, it was uh, a time when Mr. Dye, Mr. Joe Dye was the executive director of the USGA. And at that time also, you really couldn't even talk about becoming a golf professional uh, because you would lose your amateur status. And I was always so careful about talking about it and not talking about it. Although I played a lot of tournaments with the pros, you know, when they came around to Ohio and Michigan as an amateur and people kept asking me, well, when are you coming out to join us? And I would always be very evasive about it, but somehow somebody must've said something. And Mr. Dye walked up to me and said, this is a, on the eve of the U.S. Open. Renee, I understand that um, you are, have intentions of turning professional. Well, I did have intentions, so I couldn't tell him, couldn't lie to Mr. Dye and tell him I didn't. And I said, yes, sir, uh, I do. And he goes, okay, tomorrow you tee it up as a golf pro. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I called my dad and said, guess what, Dad? I just turned pro. <laughs> and how challenging was that time and that period for you, not only on the course, but especially away from the course? There there, there must have been instances as you were traveling the LPGA Tour uh, of facing discrimination. Uh, how were you able to face that and to keep moving forward? You know, I, I faced it as a, as a youngster playing golf, playing tournaments where they initially didn't want to allow me to play and then uh, decided that they would do so. So I faced it practically all my life. And I, I think it was just the 
the upbringing that I had from my mom and my dad and, and watching them and knowing that they had gone through even much more difficult times than I did. Um, but they were always positive and, and always had a, a, a never give up attitude. And um, so I think that that was just all just really part of my DNA, I guess. And what was the support like from your from your fellow players on the tour the, itself as you as you traveled oftentimes as a group quite literally from from town to town? You know, you know, traveling back in those days was almost you know, when I think about it, we were like a traveling band of <laughs> of professional golfers, I guess. Um, but you know, my because I played junior golf in my first tournament as a on the national stage really was the USJ Junior Girls, and Mr. Dye was the executive director at that time, and I met him. So I met a lot of the players at that time, and it was really a great crop of junior girls that came along at that time because many of them actually ended up turning professional and playing on the LPGA Tour. So uh, I knew players from, from junior golf through collegiate golf, and then, as I said, I played some tournaments as an amateur with the pros so so they knew me before I even went on tour so they were all supportive because we were all struggling to to um uh you know try to to make a living out there but I don't think that the time nobody really realized the other additional struggle that I had as a black player on the tour not just as a female as a woman out there even to the point where uh, the, you had issues at, at pro-ams and things of that nature, didn't you? I did. Places like I found out later that, you know, the reason pro-am amateurs didn't want to play with me because they'd never played with a black person before. Uh, I did have problems with that from that to to security guards at the locker rooms to um, to restaurants, to motels, to you know, just uh, the whole gamut. We are talking on ASGCA Insights with, with Renee Powell. Uh, Renee, your playing experience certainly not limited to North America. Uh, you also played extensively in the United Kingdom on, uh, professionally over there as well. And you also traveled extensively on behalf of the game. How did that come about? Well, you know, it's just, I don't know, just one thing led to another. And, and you know, golf is such a great sport that, that it opens up so many different doors. Uh, so you know, whenever something came up, I guess I just always said, sure, I'll do that. And I went to Vietnam during the war in 1971 with the USO and another one of the lady pros, Mary Lou uh, Daniel Crocker, and uh, played, you know, we went in support of our troops uh, during during the war in Vietnam. And, and then certainly after I actually left the tour and, and retired from the tour, there were so many opportunities to spread the, the, the word of golf and the game of golf throughout the world. I mean, I played a lot of tournaments and played all over the world before, uh, you know, as a professional when I was on tour. But once I left the tour, I did a lot of things on it, uh, the continent of Africa. And I've made like 25 trips to the continent of Africa of Africa, taking golf to the indigenous people, letting them know that golf is a sport that everybody can play. And so actually I, knowing the, uh, I had lived in England for seven years and knowing the British system and anywhere the British had had uh, colonized, they spent their leisure time playing golf. So when I decided to do, to do trips 
to um, to Africa, what I did was looked at the various uh, countries where the British had settled because in um, over there, you know, it was the, the Anglophone countries, there was a lot of golf, but in the Francophone countries, there was very little golf. But, you know, just opportunities always sort of crop up, uh, you know, in, in this world of golf. And it all stemmed from the training and, and from the opportunities that my entire family and the sacrifices that they made to allow me to play this game. It seems with, with each answer that you provide, I think of like three more questions. I just need to go back for a moment to, to the USO experience. Um, did you have any idea what you were getting into and how difficult or how, or how dangerous was that? And uh, it, take any one of these that you choose. Um, I'm guessing there weren't a lot of young American soldiers there who had, who had seen a black female professional golfer before. Well, no, I mean, there, we, we really didn't exist. It, it was Althea Gibson who played for myself. And then, uh, you know, I was the second, L, second African-American to play on the LPGA tour. So, you know, going to, uh, going to Vietnam, first of all, no, I, I think that we were young that we didn't think about the, the dangers that, that, that could be. And now, you know, afterwards I thought about what my parents must've thought. They must've been so frightened for us. But, and I remember the very first time we, when we landed at the Tanzania airport uh, and went into Saigon, the first thing we had to do was um, uh, take a fingerprint and then, and then document where we wanted our belongings sent to if something happened to us. Wow. And that's when it really hit real that, you know, this isn't um, a very safe place. Uh, and at night we'd watch bombing missions and that was sort of the entertainment. Um, but, but Mary Lou and I both went there in hopes of taking a little bit of home to our soldiers that were young and they were over there, you know, fighting a war that they never thought that they would be in. You know, a, a word that I have not used as yet and one that I think might best describe you, uh, is educator. Uh, the three your travels and certainly back home at Clearview, uh, you've been a teacher and you've mentioned the, the more than two dozen trips you've made to Africa, bringing the game to people, uh, th that education side, quite literally from a, from a PGA standpoint, uh, the, but in your life as a, as a whole, uh, you, you view yourself as a bit of an educator, don't you? Well, I do, you know, and, um, I'm, yeah, I'm a golf educator, I'm a golf educator. I'm a golf doctor, you know? So, um, just getting people into the game, um, you know, first of all, traveling the world is such an education in itself. And when you're able to do it and using your talents to teach others and educate others about this wonderful sport of golf is, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Before leaving your overseas experience altogether, and you said you lived in in the UK for seven years, uh, you are quite literally a doctor of golf. You are a doctor of laws from the University of St. Andrews. Uh, you're also one of the first women to be accepted as a member of the RNA. Uh, and now you have a residence hall named for you at the University of St. Andrews as, as well. Uh, not bad for a girl from Ohio. You're right. Not bad for a girl who grew up in a town where we only had two traffic lights. <laughs> how did how did the relationship with the University at St. Andrews come about for you? 
you know, uh, someone had contacted me and uh, uh, a, a, a person who's now become a good friend, um, Dr. Kenny Wood, it was, uh, is an astrophysicist at the university and somehow he was over in the United States um, at, a, at a program in Phoenix where I also was and, and I actually, after he made such a great presentation and at a reception later on, I said to him, oh my gosh, you know, I just really enjoyed it. And he said, and I introduced myself, he goes, oh, I can't believe it, I've been looking for you. He goes, you're Rennie Powell, I've been looking for you for a long time. And so, because he, he came over to the United States at different times and wanted to meet me and knew about Clearview and my father and the history. And somehow he decided that he would um, attempt to, um, to get a honorary doctorate presented to me. And he initially started that and it went up the ladder and, and I got a phone call from, actually I got a letter first from the president. He called him principals over there. But, uh, from the principal of the University of St. Andrews asking me and if I would accept an honorary doctorate. And I had to read the letter several times before it really, <laughs> and then he called me and um, I said, of course. <laughs> and so in 2008, my dad and I went over and it was a, the, the first time that my dad had been back in Scotland and he had never been to St. Andrews the first time he'd been back in Scotland in 63 years since World War II. So it was sort of um, like a gift that I could give to my dad in thanking him and my mom for all the things that they had done for me um, to give me incredible opportunities to, to play this game of golf and to travel to meet the people that I've met and just to be able to spread the, the great word of the game of golf. And adding to the, the to the list of uh, of uh, awards, uh, well deserved awards that you've received over time, uh, the Donald Ross Award this year from from ASGCA. Uh, I know that was a, a a great phone call for for you to receive from President Jan Beljan. Oh, it certainly was. It was such a surprise. You know, she called me, and I, you know, I Jan and I see each other at various times, and and then all of a sudden she she called with her with her president's cap and jacket, right, <laughs> to inform me that I would be receiving the Donald Ross Award. And I was literally shocked, but also uh, very happy uh, to receive that. And, you know, and, and with the connections that I've been making in Scotland and then knowing that Donald Ross was from Scotland originally and the courses that he's designed and, you know, I, I knew a lot about him, but I learned so much more about him after um, uh, President uh, Belgian had called me. And then knowing that right here in my own home area, that there are a couple of golf courses that were courses that he had designed. And certainly the course that at Inverness, which the Solheim Cup is gonna be played at in Toledo, Ohio next year, is also one of his designs. So. You know, it's just so special and things that you just never could even dream of. And so this has been such a huge honor. And for uh, for for President uh, Jan Belgian to come here to uh, present this award to me at Clearview, 
which is a course that my father designed and built, was uh, truly an eye by me and, and other people who are part of our Clearview family. And regardless of where you've gone or what you have done, uh, it always comes back to Clearview. And today you serve as head pro. Your brother Larry continues to, to work and operate the course each day. Knowing that your father, as you've said, walked every inch of that facility so many times, uh, Clearview really is home for you, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it is. You know, you, you just never know where life is going to take you. And I've, I've made just a full circle. I, mean, um, I still have the golf club that my father purchased for me at the age of three. And so I've started from there and now back to, yeah, I've traveled the world and back home to where it all began right here at Clearview. So for me, it's so very special and, and it's nice to be able to walk out the door and look and see what my father had done with the help of my mom. But, you know, it's also, it's also difficult to comprehend how one person could have done that. And, and oftentimes, you know, he listened, like, just like it was uh, recently uh, celebrating, you know, Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson, I, I always say, he began in baseball and he had um, a team behind him. And Mary Motley and Bill Willis uh, were in, in football and with the Cleveland Browns, even before Jackie Robinson, and they had a team behind them. But, and my dad was before all of them and his only team was my mom. So it was, uh, what he has done is so incredible and so significant to the history of golf and especially the history of golf in, in, in our country, in the United States of America. And the game continues and the game endures. And you started our conversation by talking about a, a junior league that, that, that played for the first time earlier this evening uh, at, at your course. Uh, you've talked to me before about a, a, a ladies league that your mother began in the late 50s. And that league still continues to this day. Uh, but touch for a moment, please, on the work of the Clearview Legacy Foundation and, and how that advances. And, and please tell our audience what's happening in, in that passionate part of your life. Well, you know, uh, Clearview, as I said, my father began building it in 1946, which is, it will be 75 years, of a very monumental uh, number of years next year. And in 2001, actually, Clearview was placed on the National Register of Historic Places by the U.S. Department of the Interior. And on the first tee, there is also a Ohio historical marker. Um, and then in that same year, we created the Clearview Legacy Foundation for Education, Preservation, and Turf Grass Research. And so my brother and my dad have done so much when it comes to, you know, they couldn't just build a course and do the things that, that ordinary golf courses would do because they didn't have the money. So they had to be very creative in how, how they grew grasses, when they fertilized and different things like that. And so from an educational standpoint though, and we do a lot of programs. I actually, right here at Clearview, we do have a program called Clearview Hope, which is a, um, it's a program for hope, meaning helping our patriots everywhere, which was started by the PGA of America. And a friend of mine at, at PGA said, Renee, you know, there are not very many programs, recreational programs for women 
military veterans and certainly no golf programs and encouraged me to start the Clearview Hope, which is a year round cost-free program for women military veterans. And uh, we have all five branches of service represented. We have about nearly, nearly a little over 50 women on our roster. And so we do everything for them uh, of cost-free for them. And so they are here every Friday, the women are here and, and we continue to get different women into the game. And golf is, it's, is, it's a program that we do, which is a therapeutic program for women veterans because many of them are dealing with PTSD. And so, um, and then we do a lot with youth. I'm on the board of a foster care program for, for children and try to get the kids out here a couple times a year to, uh, to give them a different life experience. We do programs for many other youth and, and um, so from an educational standpoint and from a pres preservation standpoint, you know, 75 years is pretty incredible. And there are many things that my dad and my mom wanted to get done while they were still on this earth. And so my goal, and which I feel is an obligation and responsibility that I have is to complete what they wanted to get done. And one of the things is we don't have an automatic irrigation system here on the course, but my brother has has kept the greens uh, in such immaculate shape and we, by dragging hoses around and the greens are fabulous, but you know, we have to rely upon mother nature and, and the good Lord to uh, water our fairways. So my goal is to, uh, by the end of the year of 2021, is our goal is to have an irrigation system in and also another, uh, a smaller, a small building that was served as an educational center, but also serves several different purposes. And one of those two would be to to educate people and do a, a William and Marcella Powell uh, archival area because we have so much, so much um, uh, things, so many things, so many items that go back actually to a hundred years, over a hundred years ago. So my dad was actually born in 1916, my mom in 1917. And there's so much history here that needs to be uh, displayed and and shared with with people and educating people about the history of golf and the contributions that people have made, and especially William and Marcella Powell, what they made, and our entire Powell family uh, that shows that no matter what you you um, can can think of, if you believe that you can do, if you can conceive of it and believe it, it can be achieved. And, and this is certainly what my family has done here is, um, is showing and, and um, believing and letting people know that it can be done. So that's a thing too. And, and, and plus the fact that we have functions and outings and whenever we do, we have to put up a, we had a big tent. So that would serve as a, a an area where we could do um, have our our dinners and and awards and uh, and and also a, a Lawrence Powell uh, agronom agronomy room and a Renee Powell golf learning area. So those are the things that 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 are our goals to be completed by the end of 2021. It's pretty lofty goals, but then when I think of what my 
parents did back in 1946, they're not very lofty goals, you know? <laughs> they, so it was the, incredible. So for those who've been uh, inspired by what, you, what you've what you talked with me about here, but the, everything that, that you and your family have been able to accomplish, uh, how can they learn more about the foundation? How can they contribute? How can they reach out and contact Clearview? Well, well, thank you for asking, Mark. And uh, we have a website, which is www.clearviewgolfclub.com. Um, certainly, they can reach out to me at any time at Clearview, and our phone number is 330-488-0404. And we operate mostly on donations and fundraising. So anybody who, who loves the game of golf or or loves history and and uh, believes in in what this little man did back in 1946. We really appreciate uh, them becoming a part and coming along with Clearview and being a part of Clearview. Um, my dad is from a little town just down the road about 10 miles. And um, he was probably at his height at the tallest peak ever was probably about five, nine, but <laughs> older, my dad was 93 when he passed and he was shorter than me. Um, but they are, they came to us one day last year and said, we are going to put up a sculpture of your dad in Minerva, which is a town he's from because he is the most famous person to come from there. And the sculpture is going to be a, a of my dad's going to be seven foot tall. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he would love that. Because <laughs> he, he always said that he was so short, but now he's going to be seven feet tall. <laughs> Renee, let me, let, let me finish up. We've, uh, we've talked about some, some wonderful experiences and some wonderful stories. Uh, talked about you as teacher. Quite clearly, you're also a student and have been a lifelong student. Uh, so in, in very serious terms, uh, I clearly have not walked in your shoes uh, or of those of your brothers or your father. Uh, you've been an ambassador around the world. Uh, but to look at our home country today, uh, it may seem in some ways that very little has changed uh, since your father was first told he could not play certain golf courses or since you were told you could not stay in certain hotels or eat in restaurants. Um, what is your view on society today? You know, I still have a lot of hope for society, but we have a lot of a, a long ways to go. Uh, today, you know, there are issues that I never thought that I would see. You know, we came through the 60s and I actually joined the LPGA in 1967. So um, at that time, there was a lot of, you know, there, were, there was a lot of turmoil going on in our country and during the Vietnam War and, you know, things of that nature. And I I never thought that we would be going backwards, uh, which is what it looks like where we are now. But also there are so many good people in the world that I think that, you know, people uh, really want to get a handle on it and, and, and you know, move in, in great, very positive directions. You know, when God made this earth, he only made one earth for all of us to inhabit and, I have to believe that you know that I'm I have a person I'm a person with very strong faith and I know that he's always in control uh, and I'm sure he's teaching us a lot of lessons now and um, uh, so 
there is, uh, if you don't have hope, uh, you don't have very much of anything. And, and uh, I just look, look towards everything being positive in the future. And for, you know, for people just really um, getting to understand each other. And as I said, understanding that we, we only inhabit this one earth and we all need to be able to get along together and enjoy the game of golf. My guest has been Renee Powell. Renee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org or download the ASGCA Insights podcast from Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and until next time, so long.